While hacking attacks like the recent Anthem breach grab headlines, a more common culprit in many large health data breaches are insiders. That includes breaches involving intentional record snooping and ID theft, as well as accidents involving lost or stolen computing devices. I'm Marianne Kolbesek-McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with Mark Combs, Assistant CIO of West Virginia United Health System, the largest healthcare system delivery network in the state. Mark will be describing for us some of the efforts underway at his organization to improve patient privacy and reduce the threat posed by insiders. Hi, Mark. Hello. Good afternoon. So now, Mark, tell us a little about your strategy for preventing insider breaches. For instance, is this a new approach for your organization? And if so, what drove you to adopt this new strategy? So, Marianne, our program is an ever-evolving one. We take the approach that there's really no magic silver bullet to resolve or even tamp down some of these issues, but we're constantly using our risk assessments, using customer surveys, using our own internal audits to create a very iterative process. So we've been at this for for some time now. So now as this program and strategy evolves, had you found that you know you had a problem with insider breaches where there inappropriate access to records that was a problem? If so, what sorts of incidents led you to fine-tuning what you're doing? So every health system out there, every hospital, anyone that's doing any sort of auditing will tell you there's always some sort of inappropriate snooping, looking, access to their medical records. It happens all the time. The key is to be proactive and try and catch those before they grow and they get out of hand. So what really led us down this road initially was a change in policy. We had implemented a new electronic health record. We moved from sort of a mainframe-based system to a more modern record, and our policy changed at that time. Prior to our new system, we were allowing employees to use their access, work access, to access their own records. We had a a read-only way, and we had a a form for them to sign off, and it was all sort of very official. When we moved into this new world, this new electronic medical record system, we really sat and looked at the implications of that. The security rule protects confidentiality, integrity, and availability of the record. We really began to get concerned about the integrity of the record if we allowed people to use their full production access to look at their own record. We changed our policy and made people push them, uh, employees, to the patient portal. Uh, We gave physicians a slightly different level of access, but still read-only access to their own record and to the records of those people who had given them proxy rights to view their information. That led us to begin to do a lot more detailed auditing. We started running reports like same-last-name reports, which led us to work very closely with human resources, with our legal team, with our compliance group, and really help drive and develop our program as it is today. In the prior policies where workers were able to look up their own records, and once you started looking at the audit logs, did you also see that there was other inappropriate access that you wanted to clamp down on? What was sort of the driver? So, as I mentioned before, you're always going to find some level of inappropriate access whether it's an ex-spouse looking at an ex-spouse's record they shouldn't be looking at, whether you have a a VIP in your organization and only a limited amount of people should be looking at, 
whether it's just care and concern, snooping, maybe something that, that they've heard on the news. So we wanted to make sure we tamped down on as many inappropriate accesses as we could. And we've been very successful. Our audit team runs audits on millions of record accesses every year, and we have the technology in place that facilitates that process. So when it comes to audit tools, often you hear that there might be a, a warning or something gets flagged, but often it's there's too many of these things to kind of look into. How, what, what sort of technology are you using? How do you follow up on something that looks like it's inappropriate, and how do you respond to that? So we have an application that allows us to import the access audit logs of multiple applications. So, for example, our main EMR, obviously we're – looking at those audit logs. We're also looking at audit logs of our PAC system, of our clinical lab system, of our pathology system, and three or four other applications. The technology also allows us to take a feed from our human resources system so we know who's an employee and who's not. And then the the technology that we have in place allows us to run reports against that so we can do things like same last name audits break the glass, which is a, uh, a setting that's flagged in our EMR. We can do employees that are patients. We can look at VIPs because they're flagged in our systems, and we can just instantly run a report on that. So we have an audit team that sits, and they get these reports daily, and they go through these reports. Once they find something that they suspect is inappropriate, for example, we have a pediatric nurse looking at a geriatric patient, probably not an appropriate access but it takes some level of investigation. So they begin to look at it, they pull all the audit logs, and they send it to that person's supervisor first and ask that supervisor to investigate, ask questions, and and get involved, and then report back to the privacy and security team to make sure we're appropriately documenting and, and tracking that progress. So in addition to the audit tools, have you rolled out or plan to roll out any sorts of changes in technology or process or procedures related to the access that workers have to the system? You know, is it role-based? People who are not on staff get different sort of access versus, you know, people who are on staff, for instance. How does that work? So all of our access is role-based controlled access. And we have Today, we have sort of a homegrown documentation workflow system that allows us to grant access based on someone's role. So if a nurse is hired on the ninth floor of the hospital, that role is defined down to that granular level. We know they need access to the EMR, they need email, they need domain, they need whatever. That information is also coupled with the audits, so we know precisely when they run that audit what that person may have access to. Our results have, have definitely resulted in changes to processes and procedures, whether it's how records are handled or the example I gave in the very beginning of employees looking at their own access, whether it's changing some of the templates or some of the roles. We use these audits and we use, especially when we find an issue, we use that to feed back into our process and to make sure that we're constantly evaluating and improving what we're doing. So, you know, at the end of the day, we're ensuring our patients that they have the best privacy and the best security that we can offer them. It's not perfect, but we're constantly trying to improve the process. What sort of authentication methods do you use, and do they differ versus on-site versus remote access, for instance? So part of that depends on what application they're accessing. 
most of our applications, but not all at this time, unfortunately, do rely on Active Directory authentication. We haven't been able to move yet into two-factor authentication, which is somewhere that we're looking down the road and trying to determine how that best works. The question there is really one around workflow and ensuring that we're not inhibiting our provider's ability to see patients in a timely manner. However, we do leverage Active Directory authentication for the bulk of our main applications. External users that need access to our system, almost without fail, will give them an Active Directory account and only provide them with the bare minimum that they need to do their job. So, Mark, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of insider sorts of breaches often happen because a mobile device was involved. Something was stolen, something was lost. Often those mobile devices aren't encrypted. Any steps that you guys have taken recently or are taking to ramp up mobile security? Absolutely. So, a couple years ago, Marianne, we implemented a mobile device management application. We beefed up our mobile device policy. And I think that's key. People really should think and review their policies. Policies are the floor and and the basis of what you stand on. Without a good, strong policy, it's it's hard to implement some of this technology. We've also deployed encryption on all of our laptops, mobile-type devices. Um, The mobile device management platform manages phones and tablets and enforces encryption on them. Through policies, we are enforcing encryption on our laptops And as we are replacing and refreshing our devices, I mean, we have thousands of devices like probably many of the listeners do, we are putting encryption on those devices. So even desktop devices now are being encrypted. So now, Mark, how do you get your employees to adhere to your policies and procedures when it comes to protecting patient privacy? For instance, the changes regarding employees accessing their own records, the mobile device policies, how do you get people to adhere to this? That can be a tough one, but I think you're most successful when you hit them on multiple fronts. The number one thing is to explain why. They need to know the why. Why are we doing this? It's not just a HIPAA thing. I'd encourage people to drop the H word in a lot of this talk because it's not about the law. It is, but it isn't. What's it really about? It's about ensuring that patients are comfortable, that patients' information is secure, that patients find a a good place where they can rest and they can receive the care that they need and they can recover from whatever reason they're in your organization. The last thing they need to worry about is whether or not their identity is going to be stolen because they showed up at your organization for, for care. So you really have to drive that point home with physicians, with caregivers, with staff, whether it's your housekeeping staff, your dietary staff, your IT staff, your accounting staff, they all need to understand why. Why are we doing this? And the more you can drive it home with them, the more they buy into it. I think that the next step you have to take is, is that people know and are educated on your policies and that they understand that we are monitoring what they're doing. There's an old saying, what's measured is what matters. If they know you're measuring it and you're watching it, they're going to be much more attuned and attentive to it. One of the things I think we've really been successful at and I'm really proud of is that we've built a partnership within the organization with the various departments that have to be involved in this, whether it's legal or human resources. I think our privacy and security office has done a really good job with bringing them into the process and helping ensure that they're backing and going with us in every step. That includes senior management, that includes our board of directors, providing education at every level and helping people understand and see the real value in what we're doing and what we're bringing. 
And again, taking it away from, oh, it's about HIPAA and it's about the laws and the regulations. No, it's not. It's about the patients and it's about ensuring that we're providing the best possible care. An organization cannot call itself a quality organization unless they're taking seriously the protection of people's privacy and security of their information. Mark, going back to mobile again, do you have a bring-your-own-device policy? Are people allowed to bring in their own mobile devices to use? And what sorts of rules do you have about preventing them from using these devices in a way that might cause a breach? You can't prevent people from using their own devices. I'm thoroughly convinced of that. We have a bring-your-own-device policy. It's part of our mobile device management policy. One thing we state, though, is that people's primary device cannot be their personal device has to be an organizationally supplied device. But people are going to bring in and they want to use their phones or they may want to use their tablets or, or things along that line. And we're okay with that as long as they're following the guidelines, which include installing our mobile device management application onto their device. That allows us to enforce our policies, our security settings that we put forth in our policy, which include encryption turned on, passcode on the device, and gives us the ability to wipe our data should something happen to the device. And it gives the the person that owns the device the ability to wipe the device completely should they decide that they want to do that. So we keep things fairly locked down unless they have access and they have installed the mobile device application, which allows them access into into certain parts of our network and our uh, information. Now, Mark, you also mentioned that measurement is an important tool. So since beefing up your security, both in terms of access to records and mobile and insider sort of record snooping, all those sorts of steps that you've taken, what sort of results are you seeing? So I'm really proud to report that we see lower and lower amounts of inappropriate access throughout the years. Even though we access our audit, uh, many millions of, of accesses, we may see less than 100 inappropriate accesses. So I think that's a real testament to our auditing team, our privacy group, security pieces we put in place, but more than anything to the education and to the the real culture change we've been able to, I think, achieve here at West Virginia. Finally, Mark, on a slightly different topic, until recently you were CISO of West Virginia University Hospitals, and now you're assistant CIO of West Virginia United Health Systems, which is the parent company. Tell us a little bit about your promotion, and did your previous role as a CISO prepare you for your new role as assistant CIO, and if so, in what way? That's sort of an interesting story, Mary Ann. Our organization is going through a a big change. Previously, a lot of the organizations within the health system were somewhat more independent. We've received a a new leader, Dr. Chris Kalinda, and he's doing a great job of setting forth the vision and direction of our health system. One of his goals is to make us more of a health system. Our IT department for many years has been acting somewhat in that manner, but it has become a much more official and a much more organized effort to consolidate our IT function across our health system. Uh, Our health system is six to seven hospitals right now in the state of West Virginia. My role as Chief Information Security Officer did really prepare me, gave me an opportunity to talk to a lot of members of senior management, to make a lot of really good contacts, to have a lot of really good relationships with folks. Because if you, I think if you're doing your job as a security officer, you're out there and you're talking to people and you're engaged and you're showing people, teaching them the 
education on the policies and the procedures and really gave me a, a great opportunity to understand more about the health system's functions and how the, the clinical side of the house works. It's been a great journey and I really enjoy working here. Thanks, Mark. I've been speaking to Mark Combs. I'm Marianne Kolbesek-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.